0: If you could find a Bible or open your Bible, you brought that bad boy along to John chapter 11. We are officially into the Easter season. Great time of year throughout the Bible. You get these anticipations of the Easter season, you have these anticipations or foretastes of the great drama of the sacrifice and vindication of God's Savior, His Messiah, His King, His prophet, His suffering servant. So you can read, for instance, like I did recently, uh, just reading through the book of Joshua, and of Joshua 10, 46-47, you get this little foreshadowing of the death and resurrection. We're not going to look at that now. We don't have time. But you can go back even a couple thousand years before Jesus' death because the Bible is pushing towards This sacrifice of Jesus and his vindication from death. And so Easter Sunday, next week we're going to consider Jesus' victory over death from John chapter 11. But this week we will consider from the same book and chapter death itself. And specifically the necessity of death. We're going to hear a death in this chapter point toward Jesus' death. We're going to hear an echo of of one like Peter who speaks more boldly than he knows. And we'll hear the echo of that famous murmuring near the cross. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? So let's watch and listen. John chapter 11.
1: A man named Lazarus who lived in Bethany became sick. Bethany was the town where Mary and her sister Martha lived. This Mary was the one who poured the perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. It was her brother, Lazarus, who was sick. The sisters sent Jesus the message. Lord, your dear friend is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, The final result of this sickness will not be the death of Lazarus. This has happened in order to bring glory to God. And it will be the means by which the Son of God will receive glory. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he received the news that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. Teacher, just a short time ago, the people there wanted to stone you. And are you planning to go back? A day has twelve hours, doesn't it? So those who walk in broad I do not stumble, for they see the light of this world. But if they walk during the night, they stumble, because they have no light. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go and wake him up. If he is asleep, Lord, he will get well. Jesus meant that Lazarus had died, but they thought he meant natural sleep, so Jesus told them plainly. Lazarus is dead. But for your sake, I am glad that I was not with him, so that you will believe. Let us go to him. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us all go along with the teacher, so that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had been buried four days before. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Judeans had come to see Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother's death. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him but Mary stayed in the house. If you had been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask him for. Your brother will rise to life. I know that he will rise to life on the last day. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. And those who live and believe in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. I do believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After Martha said this, she went back and called her sister Mary privately. The teacher is here and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and hurried out to meet him. Jesus had not yet arrived in the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The people who were in the house with Mary, comforting her, followed her when they saw her get up and hurry out. They thought that she was going to the grave to weep there. Mary arrived where Jesus was, and as soon as she saw him, she fell at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus saw her weeping, and he saw how the people with her were weeping also. His heart was touched and he was deeply moved. Where have you buried him? Come and see, Lord. Jesus wept. See how much he loved him, the people said. But some of them said, he gave sight to the blind man, didn't he? Could he not have kept Lazarus from dying? Deeply moved, once more, Jesus went to the tomb, which was a cave with a stone placed at the entrance. Take the stone away. But some of them returned to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the Pharisees and the chief priests met with the council and said, what shall we do? Look at all the miracles this man is performing. If we let him go on in this way, everyone will believe in him. Authorities will take action and destroy our temple and our nation. One of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, What fools you are! Don't you realize that it is better for you to have let one man die for the people instead of having the whole nation destroyed? Actually, he did not say this of his own accord. Rather, as he was high priest that year, he was prophesying that Jesus was going to die for the Jewish people, and not only for them, but also to bring together into one body all the scattered people of God. From that day on, Jewish authorities made plans to kill Jesus.
0: In one sense, it is good to talk this morning uh, about death, to talk about death at such a time as this, when, when no one in our congregation has just uh, died, is on his or her deathbed. Uh, in other words, it's good to consider death when we are not inside the tragedy itself. It's helpful, even productive, to speak of death while we have some distance so that when the pain of death hits home, we might, even in the back of our minds, be able to remind ourselves why even death is necessary. But at the same time, how can we really ever escape? How are we ever really distant? Because for some of you, all you know is death. You know, all you know is pain, sickness, the threat of death, or at least decay that lays at your door. Others, perhaps you've known, too many close to you die. While still others, if not really all of us, are reminded of the stench of death through hunger and famine in third world countries, through the passing of a, of a movie star we grew up watching, or or even just reading the latest homicide in a paper. One of the first questions we ask when contemplating death is why does God let this happen? Two things to keep in mind as we ask that question. Number one, in our story this morning, God in the flesh is a four days journey away. a four days journey away when He hears this news. And even still, He waits two additional days once he hears it. that His good friend, Lazarus, is dying. But, even still, we are assured that Jesus loves Lazarus. And now as a reader, knowing nothing of what's ahead, not knowing that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, we might say at this point, early on in this story, well, you know, I'm skeptical. Here's a dying man. But, Our three most reliable eyewitnesses attest to this truth of Jesus' love. First we have Lazarus' two sisters, his closest of kin, saying to Jesus, the one whom you love is ill. Verse 3, and then one of Jesus' closest disciples, John, speaks to it in verse 5. And of course, the Bible itself, which does not lie, attests to this fact that Jesus loves a dying man. The second thing to keep in mind is that Jesus has asked this question elsewhere. Luke 13, in fact, where He actually asks, it, asks the question Himself before His skeptics can. Some people tell Jesus about these two sort of current news events. First, a, a senseless slaughter at the hands of a tyrant and a tragedy of a building falling on 18 people, killing them. And Jesus basically asks the crowd... You know, why them? Did these people just have it coming because of the way they lived their lives? And he answers his own question saying, no. Essentially he says, but unless you so pay attention and so learn from death in such a way that it will change your life, then you likewise will perish. And so I'm taking uh, Jesus' approach this morning I can't tell you why exactly one person dies instead of another. But I exhort you to pay attention and learn from death in such a way that will change your life. Here in John 11, I think we see four reasons why death is necessary. Four reasons why death is necessary. First one, the certainty of death leads to a full and fearless life. Just the certainty of it. Look with me in verses 7-10 through again. Then after this, He said again to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples, obviously surprised, said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If someone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if some, anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What is Jesus saying here? Well, first of all, before accurate timepieces, clocks existed, both the Jews and the Romans divided the periods of the day to 12 hours. You had your daylight period. During those 12 hours, most of the people did their work. And then darkness fell and you just stopped working. And Jesus was proposing two sort of related, but far deeper truths to his disciples, who here are fearing their own death. Let's be frank, they are afraid to go back south to Judea towards that area. They're fearing their own death, and they they wish to plan the wise and prudent route of life that we often say, well, God's still in it, but God wants me to be wise. God wants me to be prudent. This is their only form of insurance. Of security systems, of uh, uh, gated communities, of insulating themselves. A couple different truths he's trying to communicate. Truth number one God has already assigned you a day and a night, so you might as well live your day fearlessly for God. He's given you a day, He has appointed a night, and He knows exactly when that is. And of course, by night here, He means physical death he knows when that is in fact your life is sort of like beholding an egg timer backwards right God has wound this thing up and we are constantly reminded that it's ticking hear that ticking towards a bell it's going to go off we're constantly reminded of this we're reminded of the ticking through, through sickness, through decay, through death. And He knows. He alone knows when. Ding! So, that's a certainty. I've known, I've read a few people who have lived a full and fearless life. Confident their life's going to end. And God knows exactly when that's going to happen. One such man of a singer, a songwriter, Christian singer-songwriter, Rich Mullins. You may know him. His most famous songs were Awesome God and Step by Step. Uh, not two of his best songs, if you ask me. I had better songs. And frankly, there were better musicians than Rich Mullins. There were better pianists, spanner, hammer, dulcimists. But Rich Mullins wrote songs like a man who believed his death was certain and that his life then was in God's hands. And so he, he knew the timer was coming, and he just lived life to the fullest. He relished and enjoyed life. I mean, the guy, he loved eating steak. He bragged about not eating vegetables. <laughs> All right, you know, be foolish. He, he, he slept on floors of people he just met who were hospitable to him. I actually met someone one time uh, who hosted Rich Mullins uh, in their house, I said, oh, how did you, you mean? Oh, he's at this concert and didn't have. A, he didn't have a place to stay. He stayed on our couch. It's like really nice. He just lived that way. I mean, he laughed. The guy made millions of dollars really through through his records, but he only saw about thirty-five thousand a year because every paycheck he received went through the elders of his church, whom he. And I'm not going to suggest that, by the way, but. Uh, whom he instructed on, to to give him only what the average man in his rural church made and the rest went to the church or to uh, uh, charities I mean he just he didn't care about it he lived rich was influenced about the certainty of death early on in his life he through experiences like his little brother dying at a young age to as a young child, having family picnics in a graveyard near their home, all right, in Indiana. It, in fact, his sister later commented after Rich died himself, a premature death. She later commented, "They just never thought that was strange, having picnics in a graveyard." And so, they just got used to the idea of death. It became more familiar. In fact, he wrote a song Rich did about his own death, and it was his favorite song. It's called Elijah. And the idea in the song is that when he left the earth, he wanted to go out. He wanted to die, get, get out of here like Elijah. Doing something big and bold for God. Knowing that, as he says in the song, I know it won't break my heart. It won't break my heart to say goodbye. Not to this world. One of the most profound things, Rich says, said, there, said many profound things about death. Here's one of them. He said, there's something really great about living in the awareness that someday we're going to all going to die. I'm going to die for one thing. That makes all that is hard about life more durable because we know it will soon pass. So I think it teaches us not to hold on to things to live with a sort of detachment. But well, listen to this: what he said here. This is this is brilliant. Not the sort of detachment where we are unmoved, but the sort of detachment we, where we allow ourselves to be moved easily and quickly. But we don't try to possess those things that move us. Right? To be moved, to, to be moved with our emotions and our feelings and our intellect, not to possess those things that move us. That's what fear of death really does, doesn't it? That everything good, because we know things pass quickly and eventually that's going to lead to death, we try to hold on to it. Or we try to duplicate, to replicate that experience, right? That's why people love encores. They love. Capturing things again and again and again. We want to hold on to that experience. We know everything in life is passing, including ourselves, and we fear it. Instead of realizing the author of all good is orchestrating each good that comes into our life. So we can swiftly move on to the next thing. Because it's God who's behind those things. We don't have to hold on to them to grip them in fear. And hold on to people as well. The second truth I think Jesus is trying to communicate about living while it's still day is this, that you're going to die young. You'll die young anyway if you live in response to the dark. If you live in the fear of death, you're going to die young anyway. Jesus already described himself to his disciples in chapters 8 and chapter 9 as the light of the world. So that's part of what's going on here. As long as they have Him, they have light. They have day. And so they ought to do the works assigned to them as well until He's gone from them. Until they can no longer have Him with them. Once they stop trusting the light and living radically in the light, their soul, their spirit is as good as dead, even while their physical bodies live. Look with me in verse 10. It's Part of that interesting statement here but if anyone walks in the night, if you live by death, according to death, you stumble. Because the light, Jesus, is not in you. When you embrace the certainty of death, you try things, you risk things, you love things you wouldn't have dared thought possible. Okay. Second reason, Death is necessary. We can learn from this passage here. God uses death to produce faith or to draw out faith that's already there. Look with me starting in uh, verse 14. We'll look first. God uses death to produce faith. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Now, the best way to read this, I think, grammatically in the Greek, I won't get all the technical here, but is, is like this. Lazarus has died, and then parentheses, and for your sake I was glad. For your sake I'm glad. And continuing on. Died because I was not there. Died in order that you may believe. That's the idea. Lazarus has died. Died because I was not there. Died in order that you might believe. The emphasis is strongly on the necessity of death. You hear it beating like a drum. Necessity of death for belief. Some of us can't see our limitations until we see death. The disciples here were helpless to help Lazarus. In their security blanket, right? The guy who'd always come to the rescue, Jesus, did not come to the rescue. At least at this moment. And yet, they are going to go there. Jesus says, let us go to Him. What are we going to do when we get there? Right? This has got to be what they're thinking. We're, we're walking not only towards this hostility, the threat of death from religious powers, but now we're walking into utter despair in our closest friends. Jesus meant for them to feel their limitations here, He meant for them to sense how limited they really were as they walk towards Bethany and ultimately towards Judea and Jerusalem. Years ago, I was speaking with a friend who had been struggling to believe in Christ. He was 26 at this point. When he turns 27, something happened. His father died also at age 27. He started to put himself in his dad's shoes. and In doing so, he began to fear. Fear for his wife and his, his children. What if I left them? What if I departed at age two and four, which was how old he and his sister were when his dad died? Who, who would be there to warn them of dangers only a father can warn them, teach them things only a father can teach them? Who can guarantee anyone will impart to them a sense of life and of purpose that only a heavenly father then can give? And he heard in the silence, no one, no one can. And he realized how helpless he was. But also how helpless he'd always been. And how helpless he always would be. So at age 27, he began to trust, to finally really trust Christ. I think because he realized that all men, including himself, are hopelessly limited in the face of death unless there is a hope beyond themselves. Right? There's only so much that one can see fixed Or that can fix until there's a need for a healer who can bring wholeness to all things, can bring healing to all things. He felt his limitations and reached out to Christ as Christ produced faith in him. God uses that death to produce faith and to draw out faith that's already there. Like in the case of Thomas here, look in verse 17 or verse 16. So, Thomas called the twins and his fellow disciples, let us go too, that we may die with him, with Jesus. Thomas had already been following Jesus, but here we hear his most courageous, most faithful act. He is confident that Jesus' trip down south towards Bethany in Judea would result in Jesus being seized and executed. And it aroused in Thomas the faith to stand up and declare, let's all die with him. Because that's better than living without him. Thomas wants to attach himself to Jesus, even in the face of death. Every man, every woman, at some point, gets this opportunity to stand up radically with Jesus or to stand down from him. Everyone gets that chance at some point. And Thomas did I mean, Thomas did it speaking better than he knew. Which happens again in this passage. Because Thomas and ten other disciples would, in fact, die for their faith in Jesus. Just not when they thought. Third reason why death is necessary. We see in this passage, death exposes life's fiercest enemy and forces us to choose sides. Look with me in verses 33-35. through When Jesus saw her Mary weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Of course, this is every Sunday school slacker's favorite memory verse. Right? Verse 35. John chapter 11. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. I've always heard Jesus had this emotional response because he was just sad for his friend. After all, Jesus was a human being, I was told. However, the verb imbrimaumai, which is translated here, deeply moved. And it happens twice, right? The author puts it in here two times. Verse 33 and verse 38. This verb does not connotate so much sadness as it does indignation. And So we see elsewhere where this verb is used. Matthew 9.30 give you a couple examples and their eyes were open and Jesus sternly warned them That's that verb there sternly warned them See to it that no one knows about this or Mark 14:5 for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor and they scolded her in great indignation In this case our best translation is probably the New Living Translation which says this in verse 33 when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, he was moved with indignation and was deeply troubled. Maybe not what we've heard before. But this starts to make sense if we think about it. After all, Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die and that he was going to raise him from the dead, which we'll look at more next week. So what then was Jesus both sad and angry about? Let's consider, first of all, the two main things are going on here. There's a death, and there's people responding to that death. So about what was he both sad and angry? Two things. One, that which causes death. Sin. Sad and angry at sin. Romans 5, 12. Paul puts it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam and reigned this whole time. This is why Jesus came back. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Death. So Jesus is angry at what sin is doing to wreck this world through decay and through death and also through unbelief. Which is the second thing Jesus was sad and angry about. How did people respond to death in these verses? Primarily unbelief. You see it all around in the comments that people make in response to Jesus. That's why we see Jesus get all embrima'omai right after. Someone says in verse 37, hey, could not Jesus, He who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And Jesus immediately gets embrima'omai. He's He's deeply moved. Again, it's also why Jesus speaks of the need for belief throughout this passage. Verse 15, verse 25, verse 27, verse 40, verse 42. He knew already the degree to which people would respond to him with unbelief, with mistrust. And so he's angry, he's saddened at people's stubborn refusal to trust to believe in him. And so death forces you then to choose sides. In one corner, you have the world and its response to death, which is essentially to continue to sin, whether it's masked in a in a a kind way, in a compassionate way, or in a harsh way, or in a whatever way. It's 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 continued to sin. You have responses like running from it, do anything you can to avoid it, protect yourself, insulate yourself, which is really continuing to align yourself with unbelief. I refuse to believe. I must take care of myself. I have to do it myself. Or pay someone to do it. There's a response of, just don't think about it. Don't think about death. so you can just live as you were living. Which is to continue to align yourself with sin. Or we get the response that, that death is a part of life. Right, that's kind of what we even get here uh, in verse 36 where some Jews saw him and said, see how he loved him. Because in the, when, when death is just a part of life, the most you can do is just Just love the person, celebrate their life after they die, and just recognize death is a part of life. Remember the Lion King, not the musical or the thing on ice. I don't know what that was, but uh, the the movie Mufasa is talking to Simba at this one point about the circle of life. They're looking at over this cliff at the sunset, and it's this profound, supposedly profound moment, and he says this. When we die, Simba, our, our bodies become the grass. So we decompose, our bodies become the grass, and then the antelope eat the grass. And so, in this way, we are all connected. And have you ever stopped to think about how awful that statement is? How just, I mean, it's a lovely moment, sunset, Disney movie. It is an awful statement. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible. I mean, you become, you decompose into grass. And then you go into the digestive system on an antelope. Not, you're, you're not aware this is happening, mind you. There's no mention of that. And, and then somehow you are part of everything. Of course, you're completely unconscious. And at some point you are you know, worse than just grass. You know, through this <laughs> antelope. So, I mean, it's a terrible statement. There is something really wrong with it. In fact, if, you know, next time my kids watch this movie, and I'm watching it with them, which is rare because I turn on these movies to do something else while they're watching it. Uh, I'm telling the kids, let's let's question this. There's something wrong with that. And that's actually what we get in the other corner with Jesus. The other side with Jesus. The recognition that something is wrong here. This decay that says something is wrong with this picture. And it produces this anger, this indignation, directed ultimately at sin and unbelief. That has wrecked our world. The other response. In the other corner, you have a trust in Jesus that produces both a personal but communal fight against sin and unbelief. Fighting to submit to Jesus when temptation comes, when sin knocks at your door. Fighting for people who are in sin or in unbelief through prayer. Fighting to overcome the fear to share the good news with people who are decaying and dying because of sin and unbelief. That's the other corner. You can choose sides. That's what death forces us to do. Number four. Ultimately, there are two deaths that are for our good. Verse 49-53. But one of them... Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you don't know anything at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Like Thomas earlier, but even more powerfully really, right? Because of the sinister intent of Caiaphas Caiaphas speaks better than he knows. He means this for evil. Caiaphas, hoping to help himself and the Sadducees maintain their hold on the religious and political power here, suggests that it's better to make this one man suffer and everyone else have to suffer. But he was right. Caiaphas, in, in, in a twisted way, believed in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus for the good of the nation. The only difference is the good Caiaphas envisioned was so limited. It was far too limited. The good he envisioned was too limited. He envisioned this temporary political power in a small province at one point in history. Through trust in Jesus' death, it would mean eternal glory forever for a few thousand generations of people. His good was far too limited. So it was good. That Jesus would die for us. And because of Jesus' death, the second good is that God can lovingly put our bodies to death. I remember hearing once that Woody Allen, Woody Allen once quipped that, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it through not dying. That was his philosophy. I mean, sort of funny, sort of true. He meant, he wished he could live forever on this earth. And sometimes wealthy. Prestigious people with some degree of power want. But even if it's possible to live forever on this earth, as we are in this body, the effects of sin include the decay of getting older and your skin starts to sag. You, you get, in Woody Allen's case, less witty. all right, In his case as well, less young women to creepily hit on. all right, As Woody Allen has been prone to do. But, but mostly, you get separation from God. If we lived like this forever, as we are, we would never be fully united with God because we can never fully get rid of sin. That big no in our heart stays with us till the day we die, even if we grow and even if we get more like Jesus, still there. And so it's for love, really, that God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden because had He not, they would have lived eternally separated from Him. And it's for love that He gives the garden back to us when we die, for those who trust in him. Physical death can and should always point us back to Jesus' death. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a fantastic preacher, pastor at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia in the mid-20th century. The great tragedies of his life was while he and his wife were still young, had one little girl, and uh, his wife died. Now, before the little girl, her name was Margaret, before she was 10 years old, she died. And Dr. Barnhouse was was trying to help his little girl and himself work through this terrible tragedy. And one day they were crossing the street, and a truck came awfully close to hitting Margaret. It wasn't, wasn't too close, but she screamed. It it clearly jolted young Margaret, and and he had an idea. He, He kneeled down, and he asked her, you know how sad we are about mommy, right? She says, yes, daddy, I know. Let me just ask you a question. Did the truck hit you? No. What hit you? Just the shadow of the truck. Well, death didn't hit your mom. Only the shadow of death hit your mom. Death hit Jesus. And because death hit Jesus, the only thing that can touch us who trust in Christ is the shadow of death, which is but a gateway to live forever where there is no longer night. What about us? We see common decay and death around us every day. Is it possible God is trying to get your attention? Because He loves you even still as much as Mary, as much as Martha, and as much as Lazarus. Let's pray. Jesus, the one day that bell's going to ring. It's going to come. Are we ready for it? Are we living fully in light of it? Use death. As tragic as it is, use it to help us live our lives fearlessly, fully for you, produce faith in us. Maybe this is the moment where we finally decide we're going to cast out fear, where you're going to do that in us, and you're doing it this morning, where we're going to finally trust one who is limitless because we are so limited. We ask that you would. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.